0: Let's start. Let's start this event. Uh, it's going to be, I hope, very interesting, exciting event. My name is Vladislav Zubok. I'm professor of international history um, and uh, director of uh, Russian International Affairs Program at Ideas. This program has just been created to, uh, to, uh, to uh, look at Russian global factor in a new, innovative way with new paradigms, sort of new look. Um, And in this way, this panel fits perfectly into this uh, um, agenda. Um, This panel uh, consists of three distinguished experts. To the right of me is a a professor of uh, TLSC, Eva Neumann, Monte Gilbertin Professor of International. Relations. Uh, to the left is Thomas Gomar, uh, Director of Russian and uh, New Independent States Program at the French Institute of uh, International Relations. And last but not least is my, uh, uh, my friend and uh, co Moscovite, uh, Arkady Moshes, who is uh, also. Uh, Um, head of the program at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. So uh, the um, procedure here is uh, pretty standard. We'll give each presenter 10 minutes, um, and we'll try to uh, make uh, 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 all three presentations within 45 or so minutes, and then we'll open the floor. We have... I guess only one microphone, so be patient while this lonely microphone will travel from one side to another. Well, um, the question uh, raised at this panel, what is Russia's soft power, um, of course makes me think that one power uh, I know is Russian liquid power, which is vodka. Uh, But
1: let's talk about other forms of power. Let's start with Ivor. Thank you, Vlad. I wouldn't uh, have minded starting with some liquid power, actually. It's a good way to start an evening, but um, since it's not here, I will go in medias res. Um, Joseph Nye's concept of soft power is a bit of a pop concept. Uh, It taps a large literature on power uh, and boils it down to uh, something that is easy to digest. But except for that reason, it's a good tidbit and a good starting point for a wide-ranging discussion. And as I read the concept of soft power, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Oh, thank you, madam. Uh, so uh, the two ways I think you can achieve stuff by means of soft power would be by attraction and by working indirectly inside a system. So those would be my two suggestions. So let me start by saying a little bit about what soft power is not. Soft power is not shock and awe. In Tsarist Russia, shock and awe was the way to do it. If you wanted to impress somebody with something, shock and awe was the way to go. One of my favorite are examples of the <coughs> tension between European and Russian ways of doing stuff, in this case, con, 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 concerns who was foreign minister uh, at the tail end of the Napoleonic uh, right after the Napoleonic Wars and uh, in his memoir he describes how he suggests that Russia should start thinking about whether it wouldn't be nice to win the hearts and minds of people by uh, including them somehow in social and political processes and this was always frowned upon because the way to go was shock and awe the Tsar should simply overwhelm His people by being, well, shocking and aweing, I suppose. Um, There is second the the cousin of shock and awe, if you like, which is sublimity. Sublimity, Longinus tells us, is the art of knocking people out. And uh, this is a way of exerting power. Should we say that in the private spheres? I'm sure that a number of us have experience this, sometimes you're just stunned, right? you're just overwhelmed by <laughs> our displays of, of well, different kinds of stuff um, you can knock people out and we're beginning to, to encircle the idea of, of, of soft power here because if you look at Olympic opening ceremonies for example, I think the point of an Olympic open ceremony is to knock people out I mean, that wow effect, right? You look at stuff. It's not the specifics. It's this effect of you. That's that's the thing, right? And this, I think, is the closest that Russia has come to to experience soft power. But it hasn't really worked because there have been so many other things undermining this point. Uh, I'm thinking of, for example, in the, case, in the most recent case of, the case of this, in Sochi, you had the broad coverage of how people were forced to leave their homes so that the setup should work, the working contracts that were being doled out to the people actually building this stuff, all the corruption that went into it, the horse whipping of Nadia and Marsha from Pussy Riot when this thing was on, and the list goes on. And these things detract from the effect, the intended effect of the sublime. You may be knocked out, but you come back immediately, and you you don't stay knocked out. So the knockout effect doesn't really work. So the two questions we have to ask would be, is there attraction, and does Russia work within the system? Because those are the two things that are soft power for me. I think the first place to look when it comes to whether Russia has attraction would be how Eastern Europe, Europe changed to Central Europe during the 1990s. It didn't take all that long before a region that was open to attraction from east and west was firmly drawn to the west. The soft power of Russia was about zilch. I mean, people say it's hard to measure soft power, but in this case, I think it's very simple. And it was not just Poland, by the way. Poland somehow doesn't count in this regard because, well, it's an obvious case, right? Um does russia have could we mention one thing that Russia have which draws the attention of a world public? My answer would be no i 'm open to be to be convinced of course um, what and the well um what about working inside the system? Well, Russia has an interesting negative historical record in this sense. Let me use two recent doctoral theses as examples. In this university, Joanne Yao is looking at what happened, uh, it led, what, what led up to the formation of the commission of the Danube uh, after the Crimean War. And her key point is that the English were forever complaining, Their vice consuls and consuls involved around the Danube were forever complaining that uh, the uh, Russians who had come into possession of the area uh, after the Napoleonic Wars did not dredge the river. So the sort of soft power, what we would now call soft power of working inside the system to maintain the system which would have given a lot of leeway and indirect ways of getting things done, were not done, and this caused a lot of resentment that turned out to be an important background factor during the Crimean War. Katri in uh, a colleague of Arkadis, in a recent doctoral thesis, does the same kind of analysis for Russia's Millennium Road. The idea was to build a road that would take cars from the European part of Russia to the coasts. And the first thing that Russia did was to go and have this declared as a European road. You know, the green signs all over Europe saying this is a European road. And they were told that by the appropriate commission that, of course, this is easy. Here is the list of stuff that you have to do. You have to have shoulders that are built in this, that, and the other way. When you drive onto the, the roads, the ramps have to be like this, that, and the other thing. They, don't, they can't be sort of crossing roads, etc. And then Russia said, I'm sorry, we will build our own European standard roads. That's not exactly the point, is it? Um, so there was a thwarting of the system and a refusal to work inside the system again. So soft power for Russia in Europe, I think not either in terms of attraction or in terms of working inside of the system. But maybe Russia can look to its eastern neighbor and exert some soft power there. Again, I don't know much about China, but I do know that China is famously self-centered. It's very hard to see how a power like China will experience that any other power uh, in the vicinity has a lot of soft power. So, uh, again, I sit to be corrected in in, in this case, but my feeling is that there is one big exception in history, Uh, one time that Russia really had soft power in China, and that was during Mao's early period. And that soft power was so strong that when the new Beijing was supposed to be built, for example, one simply took the maps, the plan for Moscow's, for, for Stalin's Moscow, and applied it more or less mechanically to the building of Beijing. Now that's soft power. But those days, ladies and gentlemen, I should have thought we're gone. So, last question, if you can allow me one more minute. Uh, why does Russia lack in soft power? Well, there is a fantastic tendency to try and blow one's own horn. Even, and it seems to be stronger, that tendency seems to be stronger, the weaker Russia's power position is. And the last example for me is the Minister of Culture in Russia who has now hailed Russia simply as a superior civilization. Uh, He got some Pushback from the Russian Academy of Sciences, who who told him that the draft of the report that he presented did not hold bachelor student level, and I quote here. So that was quite interesting. But at least that is the uh, the opinion of the uh, uh, of the uh, present minister of culture in Russia. Now the problem with calling yourself a superior. Civilization is that it's not really up to you to decide, is it? It's the circle of recognition. It's the others that are supposed to pass judgment on what is attractive, what is superior, and what is not superior. And here we have a problem. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, that's a vigorous start. Uh, so we... Uh, Next uh, speaker will be uh, Arkady Moshez. Ten minutes.
2: Thank you very much, Vlad. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, and I would like to start by thanking the LSE for this opportunity. Uh, Even though I've been always skeptical about the topic and the very topic about uh, Russian soft power, and I think what we are going through or have been going through is a pretty scholastic debate. Because, uh, well, on the level of yes or no, I think it's safer to assume that yes, Russia has soft, some soft power. Uh, it is attractive to some people. Some people want to uh, want what it wants, following the classical definition. But this is not the most important thing. Uh, why is it scholastic? Because here, unlike ever, I believe uh, that it's it's not possible to measure the soft power. Uh, and what is even more important. Uh, this is not what is actually used as a primary instrument uh, when Russia wants to achieve something. Uh, I'm going to use the Ukrainian case as an illustration of that in in the remaining time, but this is the point. The effect that Russia wants to uh, have uh, is achieved, but thanks uh, to a different choice of instruments. Uh, because Russian agenda is primarily geopolitical, the, the agenda in the in the neighbourhood and vis-à-vis the West at the moment, I would say, uh, because this agenda is, is is geopolitical. The more traditional instruments of geopolitics, like again coercion and payment, simply suit better than all the talks about soft power and long-term strategies of building sympathies. Uh, And there are a couple of more things, methodological points here as well. Uh, There's a question, why should Russia try to build soft power at this moment? Uh, Soft power was essentially a Western postmodern concept. Can you imagine in the 19th century somebody talking about soft power? When you want to annex a piece of land, you just invade it. You invade, you conquer, you subdue. You don't talk the talk. And uh, the Russian thinking is a lot closer to that. Uh, but in the 90s, there was an exception because the West... Uh, well, we, we were living through a unipolar moment, as we used to say. Uh, the West was uh, on the offense. And its concepts mattered. But now, then, the West, the West is in decline. And it is certainly in decline if you look at it from the Russian standpoint. Just read the Russian foreign policy concept of February last year, which is all premised on one thing, the decline of the historical West. Then why should it really care about certain concepts that the West may uh, or may not be willing to promote? Now, I'm coming to my illustrations, Ukraine and Crimea. And I I believe these illustrations are very telling. But before I do that, I'll I'll, I'll give you one quote, written by a Ukrainian scholar, Konstantin Bondarenko, published in Russia in Nezavisima Gazeta in January 2012, two years back. And he writes or wrote, neither ideas of the Russian world, nor religious canonical community of Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox Church, but, guess, united our two states. I mean, this is the naked truth. I mean, all rest is kind of uh, closer to nonsense. So when you, go into the, when you, when you look now uh, into the Crimean crisis, what did we know? That again, it was safe to assume that in Crimea, Russia had more soft power than anywhere else in the post-Soviet space. I can assure you, that in the city of Sevastopol you would probably not be able to buy a Ukrainian language newspaper. It was all Russian language. So we can safely assume that Russia had soft power. There's one footnote, one important footnote, which I want to make, is that, again, that's about measurements. Uh, The party headed by the current Crimean Prime Minister, Mr. Aksyonov, called the Party of the Russian Unity, when it participated in the local elections, fair and free elections, remember? Those elections in Ukraine used to be fair and free. And it got 4% of the vote. So this is the party which was saying was re- what really Moscow wanted it to say. From the point of view of making the others want what you want, this was the choice. It got 4%. So when crimea uh, was about to have its independence referendum uh, you know people planning the operation did not want to hope just on a good luck remembering about those 4% so they sent polite green men with guns onto the streets and that's the message and that's what tells you you can you can, your choices you may start thinking about the strategies of how you uh, increase your influence in Crimea by means of soft power and then use that influence uh, in the broader Ukrainian context, but you don't do it. You choose sending gunmen. And this is what brings you the result that you want. When you speak about the rest of Ukraine, again, this is, this is a story which is no less telling <coughs> We go chronologically. A year ago, and you remember again the definition, soft power is, is the ability to make the others want what you want without resorting to coercion or payment. So some ideational, non-material things. So about a year ago, what was Russia's message? That Russia was ready to pay Ukraine for its accession to the Eurasian Customs Union 12 billion dollars was 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 the price tag at that moment then comes January 2013 Russia is actually paying Ukraine and promising to pay now 15 billion dollars for the very fact of Ukraine's non-accession to the Association agreement with the European Union so again it's about money it's not about ideas and when that fails Uh, what we see is the invasion by stealth. Again, why? Because the instruments that are listed do not necessarily work. If you think of the demographic and ethnic composition in Ukraine, if you look at the results of two Ukrainian uh, censors, you will see actually that the share of Ukrainians was growing in all areas of Ukraine, uh, with the exception of Crimea. And the share of Russians was falling in all areas of Ukraine, all administrative regions of Ukraine, including Crimea. That happens because of the inflow of the Crimean Tatars mostly. But the, the, the kind of the explanation to the process was that people were changing their self identification. People from the bilingual families started to choose Ukrainian as their nationality and not Russian. And that was going on in all oblasts of Ukraine. You look at the, so that's about culture, language, and the other things. And I can go on and speak for a long time about the school, the politics of history, the national myth, how it was penetrating people's minds. Russian media, something very interesting, because people normally assume that Russian media is something that is universally trusted. According to the polls conducted in April 2013, Uh, ...46% of Ukrainians did not trust the Russian media. That's before it all started. In the eastern Ukraine, it was still kind of the 42 trusted, 37 did not trust. But in the country, about half of the population did not trust the Russian media. And a year later, thanks to the current crisis, in April this year... ...80% of the population of Ukraine do not trust the Russian media... And the same is true also for the east of Ukraine, because uh, 64% in the east of Ukraine do not trust the Russian media. So the Russian media did a good job in terms of mobilizing pro-Putin support inside Russia, but they antagonized people inside Ukraine. Uh, The elites, I mean, I don't need to talk much about that. I mean, the Ukrainian elites were not... Trustworthy from the Russian point of view. They were not implementing the Russian agenda. They had their own interests, regardless of which language they spoke. The church. I mean, the church is probably most difficult to understand, but there's one, one fact. Now, as we speak, we know that the Russian government still has not recognized Parashenko as the president, whereas the patriarch, Kirill, gave him the blessing. Practically next day, after the elections. And the story behind this, that so many people started to leave the parakeets of the Moscow patriarchy-run uh, administration, that the local priests basically now say, no, either we, the Moscow church, support the Ukrainian national agenda, or we lose out. And there will be only the key of patriarchy in this country. So my time is, is, is basically up. So, but my conclusion is that Russia has never had enough soft power in the neighborhood in the last 10 to 15 years. That's been inflated. Uh, that's been maybe propagated too much. I would even dare say that Russia has more soft power in the West than in the neighborhood, left, right, and rusland Versteers in Germany. <laughs> and because they, for, to them, Russia has the ideational appeal, yeah. unlike to many people living in the post-Soviet space and knowing the Russian social ills. And strategically speaking, the same Russian world is now shrinking because the message was sent that regardless of what you think and regardless of the sympathies you may or may not have, the instruments will be different. And now we see how even the leaders of the most pro-Russian and Russia-friendly countries like Belarus, for instance, are expressing loudly their concerns and fears as to what they think might happen and who might be the next object of the peaceful reunification.
3: Mm. Mm.
0: (laughs) All right, and we have the last speaker,
4: Tom Agomar, please. Thank you, and um, thank you. I'd like to thank the LSCIDs for its invitation. I must confess that I was not at all invited because of my expertise on Russia, but because of the French connection. So thank you to <laughs> David Cadier for, for, for his invitation. Um, I have three initial remarks to, to, to start and uh, to, to fuel the debate afterwards. Uh, the first one is to say that today's presentation is based on research I started in 2010 uh, with François Petit on nation branding in Russia and with Tatiana kastuyeva jean on soft power. And I will try to make a clear difference between nation branding and soft power in my presentation. This research has produced uh, inquiries. We we questioned much more than uh, uh, 500 senior executives who wanted to invest in in Russia, and we questioned them about reputational capital of, of Russia. It was done in 2010 and 2011. And in fact, we wanted to prepare uh, case studies to to see to understand what Russian big companies have had a big big problem image to enter markets uh, abroad. As you know, the academic literature is quite widespread about uh, soft power, it was said. And regarding Russian soft power, you have plenty of, uh, of, uh, of production, mainly related to, I would say, a descriptive approach of the tool used. Um, And I would like to, in fact, to try to analyze uh, Russian soft power with uh, two lines. The first one is to remind that it's related, obviously, to hard power. And secondly, a second line, which is, in fact, the link between public diplomacy, which is a concept framed during the Cold War, and nation branding. So I will argue in three ways this uh, this afternoon with you. The first one is to say that, according to me, uh, Russia's soft soft power should not be analyzed by itself, It should be compared to other ones, and namely to China's soft power. The second idea is to say say that both countries, China and Russia, have transformed their traditional nation branding into a sort of power branding that is much more uh, ambitious and much more assertive. And in fact, this process started in 2001 by China. This year, China entered WTO and also. Uh, gain the organization of the Olympic Games. And this process started for Russia in 2003. Uh, uh, it, it was also the beginning for Russia to, to, to enter, you know, WTO in 2010 and also to get the Olympic Games in Sochi. And I think that it's the third idea is fair to say that um, Russia's soft power can be seen as a failure from an EU point of view. But I think that its power branding, and I will back on that, may be seen as a success during the last decade. And so maybe it's a way to, to start the debate between us. You know, a power branding, according to us, is based on, the, on a mix of five elements. The first one is national pride. And there are many examples uh, about that, you know, since Putin uh, got the power in, uh, in 2000. Obviously, such, a, such Olympic Games, it was said. But I think also it's very important to understand the importance of Putin's leadership regarding national pride, and the fact that at the time being, Putin's, when you ask, you know, the senior executive I have mentioned, what is the key word to, to, de, to define or to identify Russia, it's Putin, for approximately 80% of them. Um, and in fact, Putin, at the time being, is, is the only uh, head of states which at the same time seen as a political leader and a military leader. Point number one, uh, power branding is also based on the state's support for large business, especially in the energy field in the in Russian case. As you know, the, the, the topic of resource nationalism was uh, very well used by the Kremlin during the last decade to justify the reorder of the energy sector uh, with Gazprom on one side and with Rosneft on the other side. Point number three, uh, this power branding should be based also on the control of information. On that, there is a long tradition coming from imperial states, Soviet states, and Russian states. It is, as you know, the development of, for instance, Russia Today channels abroad. But there is also, I think, something very important to be noticed regarding the Internet governance. Uh, You had a sort of counter-influence process, you know, made right now in uh, in Russia for the domestic debates on the Internet. And abroad, Russia with uh, China is supporting, is against the multi-stakeholder approach regarding the Internet governance. would like to, in fact, to control and to organize Internet governance through a multilateral organization, and namely uh, the um, International Telecommunication Organization. Point number four, you should have, if you pretend to have a power branding, you should have a proactive diplomacy. On that, no need to to underline the the importance of the Syria situation in in, uh, in last August, the fact that Putin offered an exit way to Obama, who didn't want to intervene, and defeats diplomatically Paris and London after their their take in Libya in 2011. Point number five, a power branding should be based also on military strength. As you know, military, Russian military spendings um, have increased very significantly during the last decade. Russia considers itself at war in Chechnya and North Caucasus since uh, Putin got the power. Russia supported the global war on terror promoted by Bush since 2011 uh, September Russia was at war in Georgia, and Russia made special operation in Crimea and Eastern Europe. So I would like to conclude to say that uh, I prefer to to, to use power branding than nation branding regarding, we know, Russia and China. And if we use this, uh, this concept, Russia can be seen as partly successful. The problem for Russia is not only to be attractive or loved, but mainly to be feared. And on that, it's a success, no doubt. And more importantly, the best way for Russia is now to be seen as a member of the most exclusive club which gathers China, the U.S., and Russia. And also, from my point of view, Russia has been su- successful in doing so. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I, would, I want to thank uh, three speakers for being so remarkably organized and self uh, containing and disciplined. Uh, so we have plenty of time for discussion. And uh, uh, what struck me that p- perhaps we initially uh, made a mistake by putting the soft power uh, so um, much in the center of it. Um, and maybe it's a straw man and, Ru- and Russia really failed miserably in having a soft power. But after all, there's another tit- a part of the title about uh, a, Russia, a new Russian strategy and I'm kind of curious in a strategy uh, a country decides a leadership of the country decides what kind of power it can use most effectively so all kinds of power should be combined in 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 a most effective combination so if we exclude the soft power we should perhaps mention what other forms of power Russia used effectively and uh, uh, we already heard one viewpoint about power branding and so on and so forth um, however what what is interesting about um, um, negativity uh, I- I- of soft power is why it, it was so difficult for Russia to use the soft power. Was it their decision not to use it? Was it because they decided from the start they couldn't use it? or they're somehow manifestly incapable of using it. Also, uh, what struck me as a second observation is that we we hear, uh, with with the exception of of Iver, who made some remarks about China, we're Eurocentric here, and Russia is a country that is, of course, uh, you know, tries to have a global impact. And uh, if we look at Russia's image all over the world it competes against the United States which is remarkable given the disparity of uh, real material power it competes and it competes with remarkable success so far uh, does that mean that there are some other factors that allows such a country as Russia that was sharply reduced after the collapse of the Soviet Union much smaller economically and nuclear weapons hopefully you know, will never be used what allows her to do that is there any role for for instance anti-americanism this is not something that russia invented but russia uh, uses quite effectively and successfully in magnifying its uh, magnifying its power in that inherent disparity between the west and itself and uh, you know i didn't mean to talk all by myself the, the floor is Open. So let's start with uh, maybe Tomila, and I will go back and forth uh, from one side to another. Thank
5: you. Thank you very much. Can you hear me I'm speaking to them. Um, thank We you can for,
0: hear you. I don't know if the mic. Can is everybody on. Else hear me? Is the mic on? Is it
5: on?
0: Try to turn it on, turn it on for the sake of uh, for the sake of humanity. It's
5: yeah. on. Uh, okay. Um, thank you very much for a really fascinating discussion. And I'm sort of one of those people who kind of struggles with the concept of soft power but recently I've come to come to um, accept that there is something about Russian soft power but I think really we should be perhaps and that's sort of picking up on some of the comments made by all three panelists we should be really talking about three things one is we should be talking about nationalism rather than soft power and Arkady's point about the fact that um, only in you know, Crimea, that's where, in Sevastopol, we, we, we saw evidence of real support for this uh, Russian nationalism and uh, joining uh, the Russian Federation. So we are talking really about nationalism rather than soft power. And the recent elections to the European Parliament should also um, make us think about the fact that it's a phenomenon that's not just... Um, observed and the kind of... There will space. be a question at the end? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I, I, this is, these are more uh, sort of comments. Um, the second... The so second, uh-huh. I
0: stop? Well, if you have a quick question, go ahead.
5: Uh, if these, these are sort of more comments rather than questions.
0: Uh, I, you know, there are many people who came here to ask questions, so to be fair to them, maybe we should uh, pass on. Uh,
6: Surely we are in
0: discussion. Yeah. yeah well, all right. Okay. But
6: okay. I comments, so let's keep
5: starting discussion. a discussion. Discussion yes, for one
0: point per person. Okay. <laughs> well,
5: go- I'll, make, I'll make my two points.
0: You questions. see, I'm losing my soft power rapidly. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> two, two points, so <laughs> two, two points, but very briefly. Two final points. I was very glad when the, the, the third panelist mentioned the sort of power branding aspect, because I think that's also very important. Whether Russia has soft power or not, um, the last in the last few years, the Russian uh, ideologists, you know, people who are working on this kind of power branding have become very skillful at promoting Russia's image abroad. And they have been successful at generating sort of a lot of uh, sympathy for Russia, including among Western intellectuals and German intellectuals have been mentioned. So there's, there's that dimension. And also there is the dimension of the decline, moral decline of the West that is simultaneously happening, and that Russia very skillfully capitalizes on. So I think we have to be discussing these mm. issues.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So on, please, uh, this gentleman on the left side...
7: Uh, Nasser Kaloun. Um, once uh, the late Professor Vatikiotis uh, uh, told us, and, I, um, and saw us nearby, that uh, he witnessed uh, that uh, um, uh, the uh, parent family of George Habash, the uh, late head of the Palestine uh, Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, when when the uh, you know that Tsar died or he's been uh, deposed. They changed his own uh, um, uh, photograph for, the, for Stalin, Lenin, and Stalin. And my point to, to say this, to say a, a respective of ideology, Russian soft power or Soviet soft power transferred through this line from one generation to another based on whether religious affiliation or uh, other forms of affiliation. So if, we, if I go to the Levant, which you alluded to a little bit, that uh, 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 traditional soft power in there uh, coming into education, you know, grants to students, whatever. D- d- uh, is any one of you discount Russian soft power in matters of education, grants, whatever? No uh, communism anymore. So uh, if Russia today and other Soviet media failing on matters of winning hearts and minds, but Putin himself as a symbol, a Tsar, Stalin, whatever, other readers winning on matters of charisma. With education and others supply it, or there is no power in this case to supply it. So in mm-hmm. other words, it's a, it's a, a fiction at the end of the okay, day. Okay, thank we'll you agree. for your
0: question, and then we move back to this side, yeah, Margot, Margot Light.
6: I, I don't want to ask a question. I just want to make one comment, and that is you mentioned you win. Uh, okay. okay, you mentioned the con- the foreign policy concept. In fact, the last foreign policy concept is absolutely full of the concept of soft power. So you may not think it's successful. You may not think that uh, it's an an image that you would find attractive. The fact is the Russians find it very important. They found it more important recently. And I would say that in a lot of parts of the world, they are actually quite successful. Putin is an, an admired leader in many African countries in Turkey and in many other countries too.
0: Uh, why don't we ask the last question for this group in the center? Allow the panel to respond, and then we'll move on with the questions. There's a lady in, in the center. If, if you can pass the mic to
5: her. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm from Syria. Um, first question, what are uh, Russia's strategic goals and goals in Syria. And if Putin leave a power, um, strategic, Russia's strategy and goals will change, in Syria especially? Thank
0: you. Okay, thank you so much. I have, but we have enough, I think, to proceed with the discussion. And we'll start with Ivar. he uh, nodded his head at some of the questions.
1: Thank you. I think the point about nationalism is an important one. Um, nationalism and soft power can be compatible. We know. The U.S. is an eminent example of that. But the nationalism that we see in Russia now is ethnic nationalism. And I think ethnic nationalism is the, the the best hindrance to a strategy of soft power that you can think of because ethnic nationalism, by definition, speaks only to the members of the community that they're trying to galvanize. So... Uh, I agree, Margot, that that what is happening in Russia now is very popular in a number of quarters. And that is, as if we had been discussing nation-building, this might have been a good strategy. I think it's a short-term strategy, not a long-term strategy, but I agree with what you're saying. But in terms of soft power, this is shooting oneself in the foot the uh, an example of in, in, in Russian history which I think is closest to what's going on now is this whole idea of the rotten West the, the, the idea again was to tell the West that, that it was rotten and that Russia was much better and that may have an effect internally but by definition telling other people that they stink is not a way to win their hearts <laughs>
0: All right, very, for very brief res- replies, uh, first uh, maybe Arkady and then Toma.
2: I just wanted to say that it's still better to struggle with the concept of the soft power than to start counting warheads and shells, mm-hmm. which some people have started doing already. But uh, um, all, I, all I wanted to say is that in the, I actually said it, that outside of the immediate neighborhood, Russia may have, or Putin personally, may have a stronger ideational appeal than in the neighborhood. And that's paradoxical because for quite some time, uh, the Western school of analysis was arguing that this is where Russia should start because it has a lot of things in place, starting with the language and the culture and education and the church and everything. And it doesn't seem to be working exactly like it was planned. Uh, but in other places, it has worked. And in the concept, yes, it's there. And there was a more recent uh, de- presidential decree on, uh, uh, on on development assistance, which will now be essentially used uh, as an instrument of building sympathies. And it will be now channeled more bilaterally through the Russian-owned go- governmental bodies than of the UN and other international bodies, I mean, this, this is all correct. I mean, there's no contradiction. But all that I was trying to say that, uh, again, those sympathies, the depth and the power of those sympathies has not been trusted. <laughs> Be- uh, and, and it has not been tested. Sorry, this is what I was trying to say. It has not been tested. It now was tested in the post-Soviet space, and we know that in order to have something happen, you need troops on the streets. And uh, I wonder if the green men come to France, whether the French people will still vote and support for Putin's ideas. But this is a hypothetical statement, of course. Okay.
4: I mean, it's not really an, a, a hypothetical <laughs> statement. <not bad. laughs> Your military is that Pat? No, no, no. We have still a nuclear weapon. Um, now, no, more, su- more, su- no, <laughs> um, no, more seriously, uh, there are deep connections at the time being between the Kremlin and the Front National in France, which is uh, the right um, party, and it's constructed. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something very, very serious to be taken into consideration. I would like to, to, to respond to, to your question on charisma, and also I'm not sure to have well get your question in Syria, but I will try to, to make a point. Yeah, uh, I will try to I try to make a point on that. Uh, for charisma, what is interesting to say that when you have a brand, you know um, you need some attributes to define a brand in terms of marketing, and the main attribute of a Russia brand today it's clearly Putin. You know, it's level of popularity um, domestically, but also uh, abroad is um, is uh, is very very uh, uh, amazing to, to 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 some extent, and in fact it was a sort of um, a long construction. Um, Putin, pre, pre, you know, present himself as a sort of alpha male, you know. And it's, uh, it's quite funny sometimes to see all the pictures, you know, he made all the possible sports, he do everything possible expect, except uh, going to space. But if it would have been possible, I think he, he, would, he, would be, he would have been happy to do so. But it's very serious because I think we should understand uh, his own path. You know, you, we should understand that Putin, uh, 23 years ago, uh, was defeated. Finberg's self uh, defeated coming back from east uh, uh, part of germany and being uh, no one to some extent and 23 years after with uh, his entourage uh, is feared by everyone in europe so the the feeling of power of personal power seems to me uh, um, impressive and i think it's it's part of the problem when we are dealing right now with the russian leadership that's this uh, imbalance in terms of charisma in terms also of uh, the production of our own political leaderships, when, for instance, you have the balance between Putin and Hollande. You know, it's it's something um, which uh, doesn't match from from my point of view. And it's something which should be observed also for difficult matters. For instance, um, selling weapons to Russia, uh, French authorities prefer to send military guys to do so. So there is something on that. And I think that Putin's charism is certainly at the core of, uh, of, of, of its brand. Sorry, I didn't get your question. Can you? Um, if Putin leaves power, uh, do you think Russia's strategy in Syria will change? Not at all. Um, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely a critical issue, you know, the, the positioning of, of Russia regarding Syria, given, given the, the nightmare in Syria right now. What is important, it is in fact to say that um, Russia is more and more strongly against the notion of R2P responsibility to protect, which is seen as a way to make regime change. And it is partly related to the uh, operation made by NATO and namely uh, France, UK and Norway in Libya. That's one of the consequences of that. In addition to that, there are obviously the bilateral links between Syria and, and Russia, which have been, from my point of view, overestimated, because when you compare, for instance, the selling of weapons to, to Syria by Russia, it's only 20% of the sale of weapons to, 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 to Algeria by, by Russia. So it's, it can explain. There is also the, the naval facilities, but that's not the main element of explanation. I think that the main element of explanation is, in fact, to try to point out also the Western contradiction, to say, for instance, to friends, you are supporting in Syria people. You are you are striking in Mali, for instance. And this sort of thing is something very, very important to be noted because it's also a way for Russia to point out the failure since from Russia of multiculturalism in Europe. You know this idea that Europe is declining and is no more in a situation to protect chrétien d'orient. It is something more and more construct in the Russia propaganda at the time being regarding with Syria. All right, let's take more questions on uh, this side. The gentleman in the
0: back who was uh, holding his hand from the start. Yes, uh
3: thank you very much. It is a question, not not comments. Um it's uh partly based on the excellent comment about more soft power in, in the West than in the near space, and I would refer the audience to this book, Red to Black, by a man calling himself Alex Dryden, which explains a lot of that. The question is, um, is enough attention being made in relation to the oil and gas and energy and natural resources as part of the six-point plan in merging that with the military, particularly in a region like Africa, and would you like to comment on the hypothesis that a lot of Russia's heavily disproportionate successes in Africa, compared, for instance, with the much more economically significant USA, are down to commercial uses of the armed forces, um, Victor boot his successors and his maritime counterparts.
0: All right, maybe we'll take uh, one or two more questions on this side and avoid shuttling back and forth. Um, <coughs> yes, yes, please.
5: Hi. Um, I had two very short questions, I promise. Uh, how can Russia re enter the international society after having been expelled from the G8? Because now it's functionally, e- I like think, an economic partner for China, for this SCO, etc. So how can it re-enter international society? And um, was the intervention meant to bolster its image uh, to seduce other countries to its just and rational order? Or was it meant to rebuild its former power based on history and culture?
0: Okay, thank you. Very short. Um, some, Yes, this lady.
1: Yes, you.
3: Oh, thank you. I would like to ask a question. Uh,
0: is because you spoke about uh, soft power, actually hard power of Russia and that soft power leads sooner or later to hard power of Russia and um, actually I wanted to ask about the members that finally joined the customs union with Russia, namely Kazakhstan, Belarus and Armenia and what worked there with what didn't work in mm-hmm. the case of Ukraine Yeah, very specific, very good and then we can move to to this uh, the center uh, two more and then um, another discussion. Yes, to, to this young man.
3: Uh, hi, I've got two quick questions, one of which was actually raised by the, uh, the, the chairperson of the panel, which is, how is uh, Russia exerting so much influence despite the fact that it's, so, um, it's less economically advanced, less, um, has got less uh, smaller military than the US? Why is it that it still manages to compete with the US at some level across the globe? And then the, the second question was more about so- the concept of soft power and how much soft power and hard power go together, and, and whether there are cases where countries have a large amount of soft power but don't necessarily have the economic backing or the military backing to therefore support it. Um, so it's, it, I guess, the, the, how the two fit together.
0: Well, we have very diverse questions, and as this lady in the back, uh, this uh, probably will very be. Lo- very No, no, no. It's uh, it's for podcasts, so you have to speak to the mic. There are other people in the world listening to us.
3: I had a question about the West's response to Russia's recent actions, because often Russia Russia says um, that actually the West's use of soft power is quite dysfunctional. America could barely pass a budget. Um, David Cameron's getting more and more frustrated with the EU and the kind of negotiations that have to go on there. So, do you think the West will further diverge into the use of soft power or actually take a leaf out of Russia's book um, and try to use more kind of the Russians' um, way in terms of getting what its nations want?
0: Good, excellent. Yeah, back to the panel for, for a while. Um, who wants to react? Thomas?
4: Yeah. So, a question about uh, G8. Um, you know, in the. Um, it is very often said that russia has been humiliated in the in the nineties it's a topic very often used by the by the the, the Russian diplomacy to justify its uh, its, its, uh, its statements, I think we should remember that precisely you know Russia was offered to join G8 um, to avoid humiliation and because of the NATO enlargements and at that time Russian economy was uh, lower than the uh, Portuguese one for instance, so it was clearly a way to try to engage uh, to, to engage russia. I think that the decision to put away Russia from, uh, from G8 is certainly the most important one of, of this crisis, because it's also a way for, for Putin to decide, I would say, to reflect the de-westernization of the world. What is interesting in his in position right now, he pretends to say there is a sort of complete decline of the West, different, differently observed between uh, Europe and and, and the U.S. But this idea is very widespread in the the Russian establishment right now. And to some extent, being put away from G8 is not really a problem. It's just a way for Russia to say, okay, we do do consider that uh, the West is is losing, and we are, in fact, what is interesting is to observe the G7 right now in Brussels, there are only, you know, one part of the of the of the global outreach. I, I would say so. I think that's that's the main consequences of this crisis. Remind also that uh, at the United Nations for the General Assembly, there are only 11 countries uh, which voted for 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 Russia. I have not the complete list in mind, but for instance, Venezuela, um, uh, Nicaragua, countries like this one, and. 58 countries uh, which um, doesn't vote uh, no or yes. Uh, and you add in this group China, India, and, and, and Brazil. So from my point of view, there is certainly a diplomatic um, Russian isolation right now and certainly a, a wish to try to, to, to stop it. Okay, even.
1: Thank you. Um, There was a question about oil and gas and commercial stuff vis-a-vis geopolitics. And uh, when you pay, it's not soft power. I mean, when you get friends by paying them, that's not soft power. Soft power is the conduct of conduct. I agree with Arcadi. I mean, it's making people... I mean, as a father, I recognize the basic idea. It is that people will do as you want when you don't see them and when you don't pay. They do it because they want to do it. And uh, when you pay them, that's not the case. But in terms, of if we should change from talking soft power to talking geopolitics, I think Russia is taking an enormous gambit with what they're doing now. Uh, if Germany decides to go off gas, Russia will. and Russia, and Russia if we take it as a given that Russia is dependent on, on, on selling oil and gas in order to keep afloat. Even if they can legitimize a lot of things with increased nationalism, they will still need that income from oil and gas to to keep the thing going. Then, as we've already seen with the $30 billion deal, then China is the other alternative. And if I were the leader of a country of 140 million people going down, I would have thought thrice before linking up and making myself dependent on income coming from a 1.3 billion strong state going up. So in terms of sheer geopolitics, I think this is a big gambit. Uh, I could use other words. Um, (laughs) When it comes to the question of of when Russia will re-enter international society, I think we are too quick to say that Russia is outside of international society. Being thrown out of G8 is not being thrown out of international society. Russia is there everybody has to deal with it and uh, when you look at what people are doing there is a lot of, of symbolics going on some of them will hurt but we are very 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 far indeed from talking about leaving international society so let's keep this in perspective and you know I know that this is not de rigueur in this country to disagree with people, but, you know, could we disagree just... Yes, yes, course. Get Please. it out. Finally. Uh, I, 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 disagree, I disagree with you that, that Russia is projecting a lot of power. I mean, when I was a young man, uh, there was a division straight through Germany, and <clears throat> what was then? The Soviet Union was on the one side, the West was on the other. The world named, as you know, as a specialist on the Cold War, the world named a period of its history... After the confrontation, where the Soviet Union was one of the parties, look now—the <laughs> front is in Donetsk. I mean, first time as tragedy, the second time is farce. Right? I, I can't see any much power being being, being projected here at all. And uh, this whole idea that uh, that uh, that uh, Russia is being feared around the world—by whom? Could you specify?
0: All right, there's a debate here. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe Arkadiy. Uh, no. Yeah, well, to? let's. Uh, uh, Arkady wants to say then, several then things. Then, and, then, and, I'll, then and I will take can, it probably away
2: from this. So I don't know. But yeah, I
0: fully agree with Iver that Russia, Russia is part of
2: the all this international dealings and nitty gritty, and everybody and their mother kept, keeps calling Putin. And this is this is not called isolation. Or this is not called being kind of dropped out or I- expelled from the international society. Uh, I have some questions on the intervention, what it was kind of meant to do. Uh, I don't think that there was a strategic plan behind it, behind this particular annexation of Crimea. There were domestic drivers. There were security factors. Uh, there was this Napoleonic thinking, the first you get engaged into the battle and then you will see what you have to do. Uh, I mean, this is, it was well planned. The contingency planning was there. Mm-hmm. Definitely the troops knew uh, which switch to flip and how. And uh, they were prepared. But whether to take it further, I don't think there was a plan behind. And uh, I'm not sure whether all the uh, possible potential consequences were taken into account. I think the idea was rather you secure something, you consolidate your gains, uh, you count on the same attitude by the West as, as the West uh, has, has shown during the Georgia crisis. You do something in Georgia, and then in two months it's business as usual. You do something in Ukraine, and then in six months probably it's business as usual. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, this, this is what it was. Uh, I don't think there was much of a strategic plan behind why Russia is still managing to beat the U.S. I mean, well, first of all, because this is not a global competition. It is still beating the U.S. in certain pockets to which the U.S. does not pay much attention. And it is probably beating the U.S. because the U.S., especially under the Obama administration, uh, decided as a matter of principle to pay less attention to the EU-Russian common neighborhood in particular, and to Russia as well, because first they were doing the reset, then they were resetting the re- reset, and then they were thinking how to mm-hmm. reset the whole un- non- non-workable thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, they, even now, even now, they do not consider Russia to be, Mitt Romney did, but, I mean, the democratic uh, establishment does not consider Russia to be U.S. geopolitical rival number one, and, and rightly so. This is one... Uh, explanation. The other one is Russia is the decision-making. Russia can uh, capitalize on the opportunities that emerge because the decision-making is amazingly quick. They don't have to, to fly representatives of 28 countries to Brussels, spending more money on, on, on the tickets than they spend on, on the, I don't know, development aid <laughs> every year. Uh, and then they come and then they fly back, enjoying the duty-free, because this is... Uh, uh, it, no there's no duty free, but but it's, there's still there's still travel value. It's duty free okay, and travel order, value. Order. The prices are still the same. Okay. So uh, so this is it. The decision making. I mean, as a small group of people, like minded people, uh, and kind of who know where the authority lies, can take quick decisions. Some of these decisions can be mistaken, uh, but uh, mm. but nevertheless. And then finally, Russia has the resolve. It has less resources, but it has skills in using these resources for geopolitical purposes. And it has resolve. And the West is the other way around. It has more resources, but it does not have skills because it forgot what the Cold War was about. It forgot what the geopolitical rivalry was about. I mean, Europe now. Okay. So there are things where Russia objectively is working in a more effective and efficient manner than the United States. Uh, Western response to the Russian actions? No, the West will not act as a copycat. Uh, They simply cannot. I mean, the West cannot now decide, you know, to put, to invest money into counter propaganda. I mean, uh, they're closing the radio stations and outlets and training programs in the United States. And, And so it's, we were not going to see it. So I think the West is actually, we will swallow Or at least we are not yet in in a situation because there are people who don't like what Russia is doing and that there are others who like, as we discussed, what Russia is doing. So the West is not going to agree that it should act to boost its, uh, again, decreasing soft power. And it's also decreasing, by the way, because the West uh, does not have the resolve I spoke about. Because if you now come to Ukraine, a lot of people... Uh, choose the European option because the Russian option is worse. And this is very unfortunate because six months ago the same people were choosing Europe because they thought Europe was good. And now they're saying, I mean, it's just, we don't want to go to Russia, therefore we have to go to to Europe. And the results of the elections actually show that. A lot of people who would would not have voted for Poroshenko under different circumstances now had to do it. And and the final question was about the the members of the Customs Union uh, which are joining. Uh, In all countries, the motivation is different. Because uh, in Kazakhstan, this is a combination of some economic expectations, rather serious economic expectations, and uh, they're not ungrounded. Uh, They do want to have access to a larger market. And especially now, I was in Kazakhstan two months ago doing interviews, actually. I mean, people are kind of fascinated about their prospects that Russia will be under the Western sanctions. And all the Western companies will put their head offices to Kazakhstan where taxes are lower because they will also have the access to the same market. I mean, 99% this is not going to happen, but 1% they will do it will make a difference from the, in, within, in, within the scale of the, of the Kazakhstani's economy. So there is economic motivation and there is just personalistic motivation. And when you talk to a lot of people there, they tell you that uh, President Nazarbayev has personally invested very much into this project – But uh, after Kazakhstan goes through its transition of power, it's very difficult to say whether it will stay on board. Belarus, uh, this is a very mercantilist choice because Mr. Lukashenko is paid for every signature that he puts under any document. Uh, and and uh, he's also allowed to criticize what he's signing. But, I mean, for him, it's, it's a very clear game. I mean, he gets a, a billion to two billion dollars every time he signs something. And altogether, the Belarusian economy is subsidized by Russia by about 20, up to 20 percent of its GDP, which is quite a good deal. And uh, in the case of Armenia, which is going to join, I don't think it had a choice. Last year, when Mr. Putin traveled to Baku and indicated what could happen potentially to Armenia if Russian Azeri rapprochement takes place in terms of weapons, in terms of security guarantees. So if Armenia kind of decided to continue its negotiations with the EU and sign the association agreement, the consequences in the security sphere uh, could be quite dramatic for Armenia. So this is not soft power. This is, I would say, some kind of maybe soft coercion to put it mildly, but but uh, this is this is the point. I mean, all the countries have different motivations. It works. Uh, the customs union is a is a better functioning organisation than anything that has been created in the post-Soviet space since the disintegration of the Soviet Union. But whether it's sustainable is a big question. Despite the treaty signed uh, last uh, ten days ago. And it's quite clear that the returns for all the participants will be diminishing. This is already day clear, and that would be they would be diminishing even if Ukraine joined. But without Ukraine, uh, it's it's even it's simply more obvious.
0: All right. Thank you. Back to the debate. So should we fear Russia? Maybe it's all uh, exaggerated.
4: Thank you, and thank you for the disagreements. Um, it really depends on uh, your historical reference. Obviously, if you compared, you know, Russia in 1812, for instance, or 1854, or during the Cold War, there is no reason to, to fear, apparently, uh, Russia right now. Um, if you consider... Sorry. If you consider Russia um, when, when it was, you know, in the 90s, that's completely different. Because you have a comeback of Russia. Uh, in terms of, uh, of um, influence on the international scene. So now, if you ask the question to who are the, the, the people who feel themselves feels, ask, uh, ask in Poland, you know, ask in Baltic States, ask in Moldova, ask in Georgia. Um, the, the point is, in fact, also to, to take into consideration seriously the real situation within the EU. We have mentioned, you know, the the last elections. The fact that, for instance, you know, UK, UKIP was first in the UK, Front National was first in France. So it does mean something about, you know, the real state of the EU, and it is something which is perfectly understood by Russia. So my point is not to say that there is a sort of uh, uh, invasion in preparation, something like that, like like during the Cold War. Not at all. My post, pers- my point is just to say that there is. Clearly, a wish coming from Russia to create a mixed image of attractiveness and of fear, and it 's something which is, in my view, re- regarding my research similar to what has been done by China during the, 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 the last decade and The main point is in fact to be to understand that Russia considers that the future will be much more brutal. There will be no more postmodernism approach, that we are coming back to a sort of a 19th century situation, with a sort of new concert of nations, and they are preparing themselves in this way.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I suggest there will be uh, more questions, but maybe the last round of questions all in the back. Yes, to the gentleman first, and then...
1: Hello. Um, would we be talking about Russian soft power if 30% of European gas did not come through Russia? And it, in particular, would people be talking about it in Germany?
0: Okay. Can you pass to your neighbor? Because he raised his hand as well. No, 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 no. no. The, the, in the front. More, more to the front. Uh,
6: I wonder if the uh, kind of traditions of Slavophilia and anti-Westernism I mean, that actually, soft power is just something that's essentially alien to Russia, that it will never really embrace the concept at all.
0: Okay, very quick, thank you. And then on, on the other side, a couple of hands. All the way in the back, this gentleman
3: looking to? Well, we, Russia, Russia keeps... Hello? Yeah. Russia keeps claiming that basically that uh, in terms of its ultimate grievances towards the West is that, uh, is that Gorbachev agreed to the reunification of Germany in, in, in return for Jones-Baker as saying that there would be no eastward expansion hmm. of NATO. Now, the point... And, and the point is, as you know, this happened under Bill Clinton. Now, the point as I understand that the Americans d- deny that this was the case, but I think Gorbachev would still, to this day, would still, would still say that, that there was such a deal, which, of course, is echoed by, by his successor Putin today. So the, but I'm at the panel to, just to, to, to clarify this it's, it's extremely important thing is to w- whether this is, w- what is the truth of the matter, what, what was agreed in 1990. Uh, anyone close to that
0: group? Yeah, maybe more to the front. Gentleman in the front.
6: Yeah, I just want is it working. Yes, yeah. just want to make the point that I think about last uh, fifteen years under Putin, we've seen Russia emerge as uh, with one attraction that it seems to stand as a powerful independent state, uh, able to withstand the propensity of the international community. By that I mean the United States and a couple of uh, allies to intervene wherever it may seem fit and therefore that was a powerful element I think in Russia's appeal especially in the United Nations now this is for Arkady really I think Uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea blows that because the defence of sovereignty and independence of states doesn't look easy to reconcile with unilateral action that Russia took therefore my question is uh, the specifics of the decision that was made at that point and as I see it there are two elements to the way in which Russia has tried to justify that action. One that there was an illegal UNTA which had uh, real no legitimacy as an independence government and secondly that uh, the policy that might be pursued by this uh, wild group might include the annexation of uh, or rather the, the swift entry into in some undefined way the western community particularly NATO and that Putin was not prepared to see American cruisers tying up against Sevastopol. So strategic and uh, opportunism, I think, explain it. But it does appear to me that Russia has taken a hit, particularly, I think, among those other, somebody mentioned earlier, states of the former Soviet uh, states uh, with borders with Russia. And to that extent, there is some nervousness, although I think it's a a little bit exaggerated. So my question is, how does Russia... Play the sovereignty nineteenth uh, century model of the nation state against the post modern uh, liberal internationalist consensus, which is frankly breaking down as we as we, as we
0: okay speak. russia against the liberal consensus, maybe one more quickly yeah. there if it 's a quick question, I would appreciate uh,
6: what Russia's
0: relate with the Muslim world I understand that Putin has attended the Organisation of Islamic Conference as a member because it has large Muslim minorities, and I think uh, it's a very important question uh, and uh, what do you do uh, Russia's relationship with the Muslim world. Hmm. Oh, big one, right? And then the one in the front, actually, for a change. Yeah, could you come come down, please, uh, David? David Kadir.
7: Thank you. Uh, the panel has answered pretty clearly the question of whether Russia declared strategy in investing in soft power can be viable. No soft power and not even a strategy. So my question is a bit different. Is Russia afraid of EU soft power? Why did Russia go through the trouble of annexing a bit of territory, of manufacturing crisis in the east of Ukraine, just because Ukraine was about to sign a long Boring, immediately technical document with the EU called the Association Agreement, uh, made by 28 uh, ministers that took the plane and spent their money on the, on the airlines rather than making this document. How can we explain that Russia felt threatened by such a technical document, which is about the size of carrots and the uh, intellectual property rights?
0: Okay, if you, if you're very quick uh, to the point, yes, yes, please.
3: to elaborate on what um um Dr. If you're said quick. Before.
0: Yeah,
6: Yeah, um, just that um, wanted, uh, that the oh, going to say that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that the, the, EU, the EU's reaction to um, to what's happening in Ukraine has been to speed up its its um, neighborhood policy for instance with with Moldova um, by um, accelerating its its visa liberalization deal with them. Um, so
1: will will the pursuit of of its uh, normative agenda in the EU will this um, then
6: um uh, provoke Russia into pursuing hard hard power policies, for instance, in Transnistria.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, back to the panel now, uh, starting in the usual order. Either.
1: Thank you. Uh, all right, Tomas, we didn't get the debate after all. I mean, if we compare with the 1990s, everything is progress in this in this sense. I I, I, I agree with that, and when it comes to the neighbor the neighborhood, I also agree. So. Uh, so, but I would, my point is that the bigger picture, for most of our lives, we cannot talk about Russia now being sort of uh, power protecting. But you know, it's nice to be nice. So let's 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 agree, huh? Um, I think the big question, the really big question, came from, from up there: are uh, the uh, how to stop the West? There were there were deals made. There were promises made in the 1990s, of various kinds. And uh, as seen from, from, from Russia, the whole, I think, the key question to ask is, the West has all this soft power, and when when being left to choose, as we saw in Ukraine, as uh, Kadeh brought it out for us, uh, there will be a choice for the West. What does Russia have to answer with? And exactly since there is so little soft power to answer with one has to find other ways of doing it and you know I think we should t- 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 just speaking as someone who's extremely scap- skeptical of what's going on in Russia now I also think it's important to take a step back and remember that there are certain legitimate interests here um, gas and soft power well again you know if you have to pay for it it's not soft power Ah, uh, you I mean, if you're doing it for cash, you're not being talked into it. Mm. I think that's it's it's a, that's, it's it's a different question. Somebody asked in the last in the in the, in the round whether we have examples of countries that do not have military power but have soft power and are are efficient. I would say that Sweden and Denmark in the uh, area of uh, of uh, of, uh, of human rights is an example, and also in a number of everyday international relations. Settings, a lot of stuff is being, if not decided, then shaped for decision uh, by this kind of power. Another example would be Japan. Japan is well-known throughout the world because of of, of, of activa like food, anime, manga, etc. I have a friend who takes Japanese classes. Half the class are sitting there wearing things like rabbit's ears. I mean, they're into this anime thing. I happen to be a Norwegian myself. Uh, <laughs> If you look at, uh, there are thousands, I, I, I don't understand it, but there are thousands of Italians and Serbs and a number of other people who study Norwegian simply because they want to understand the texts of a certain kind of, 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 uh, of black metal. Now that's soft power. <laughs> you get people to, to learn the language in order to understand the cultural artifacts. That's soft, that's, that's soft, soft power for you. Um.
0: Well, I wouldn't comment on that. How many people <laughs> take classes of Russian language to understand the language of Russian <laughs> literature? No, that's let's that's let's pass this as How a many, Norwegian many. provocation to, <laughs> uh, to
4: the next. So, three things quickly uh, on Ukraine. Maybe I have a slightly different reading than um, Arkady's one. Uh, I don't think that, you know, there was a sort of EU aspiration in Ukraine. I think that uh, what happened in Maidan was much more a uh, complete reaction similar to what happened, for instance, on Taksim in Turkey. People were completely fed up with corrupted elites, and that was the main motivation. And afterwards, af- obviously, there was uh, the aspiration toward the EU, but I think it was not the main driver uh, of, the, of the events. The problem now we are facing in Ukraine is the fact that we have a completely corrupted political elites where the eighty killed people on Maidan, but at the same time, that's the same system which is uh, seen, uh, in place. From my point of view, Poroshenko was one of the creators of the um, Party of Regions, and Timoshenko will be uh, probably the main opponents. So I think we will be facing, you know, um, unfortunately, a similar situation in the coming um, months. The second point about um, uh, does Russia uh, embrace soft power? Uh, your question Mister. Um, I think that it's clear that it's one of the objectives for Putin. He made this, his first statement about that in uh, 2004 to all his ambassadors to say you should create a much more positive image of Russia abroad. But what is also uh, important to be observed, it's all the investment made by Russia on nation branding, as I said. So there was a lot of money, it's well researched in the academic literature, given to um, peer uh, companies, Western peer companies to do so, or to uh, Western pundits to try to, to, to improve you know, uh, Russian nation branding. Uh, but the, the key point, once again, with soft power it's also something we should keep in mind. It's related to naive, naive production. It's all the time sticks and carrots. There is no soft power without hard power, not only for, for Russia but for the U.S. and also for Europeans. Uh, last point to respond to David about um, uh, is Russia afraid of... Um, External soft power for sure. I mean, the the first real um, trauma for Putin is certainly the Orange Revolution in 2004 in Ukraine, which has been seen as a sort of conspiracy, you know, coming from the U.S. and coming from Europe. Uh, Second point, the reading of the so-called Arab Springs was completely different in Moscow than in uh, European capitals. And also, there are a point on that, to say, have a look on the consequences of that, you know, for instance, in Libya. Are you happy with uh, what happened in in, uh, in in Libya? And the third and most important point, it's uh, the conditions of uh, his re-election in 2011-2012 with Bolotnaya. That was an expected demonstration, and uh, there, there, there was a fear, you know, certainly for, for Putin uh, uh, about that. So the problem for Putin is, in fact, his inability to understand that there are some... Uh, popular movements, which are not all the time, you know, manipulated from the outside.
0: Okay. last
2: word. A couple of Almost. points. One thing on Germany. I mean, it's not so much about gas, uh, as well as actually in many other European countries. It's about the European exports to Russia. It's about the opportunities of the Russian market. Hmm. If it were only gas, it would be a lot easier. Uh, but uh, 6,000 German companies operate in Russia. Russian market brings approximately 300,000 jobs into Germany. And even, if, even though this is only 3% of German exports, that's a lot. So it's not about gas. It's about how much this, this gas thing wor- has always worked the way that the more gas Russia was selling, the more revenue it was getting, the more it was buying. And uh, in that sense, interdependence is is, is an important thing. It's a a state of fact, and they care about it, and and it's understandable. But there are many other things. Uh, On this, about the EU and soft power, it's not soft power as such. Uh, It's transformative power. Because EU, uh, if it succeeds, uh, it's a huge if, because, yes, Ukraine is a basket case. And, uh, uh, but if it succeeds, even in kind of in moving towards incremental uh, change in Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine, that will be a challenge to Russia, not an immediate challenge to Putin. In 2004, during the Orange Revolution, uh, this would have been a much bigger challenge because then the two nations and the two countries were, and the two identities were actually closer to each other than they are now. The Russia that lived essentially without the free media for for another 10 years and Ukraine that lived with the free media, with competitive political environment, this is a different country. Therefore, what happens in Ukraine or what might happen or may happen in Ukraine, I would argue, will not have an immediate uh, spillover effect on Russia. But the gradual transformative changes potentially might. So, yes, uh, will Russia react strongly? That depends. It's, it's another kind of long conversation. For as long as the situation in, in Ukraine stays as it is, probably Russia will not react in either a Georgian or Moldovan way because to have more conflicts will not necessarily uh, look great from the point of view of the correlation of forces and Russia's own resources that it can spend uh, kind of and waste uh, in fighting all these wars at the same time. Uh, if Ukraine fails... Uh, if the insurgency spreads from uh, Donetsk to what is now known as a potential rump state uh, stretching from Kharkiv to Odessa, then it's a different story. But I'm certain that this is not going to happen. And the final uh, question, because Ukraine without Donetsk remains Ukraine, Ukraine without Crimea remains Ukraine, it's unfortunate, but in geopolitical terms it remains Ukraine. It's not a split of the country into two, which some people were banking and predicting was going to happen as soon as the first shot is fired. Nothing like that has happened for a number of reasons. And the final kind of remark on the sovereignty. It's actually very interesting because, well, in addition to two things that you said, Putin used two more explanations. First of all, the transfer of Crimea was illegal itself according to the Soviet laws valid at that time. So it was an illegal act. So he is restoring the historical justice. And uh, that it was actually people's will, which was somewhat liberal. And they were quoting the, uh, the UN Charter and the right of the peoples to have self-determination and everything. Uh, when it comes to sovereignty... I mean, people do not see any contradiction there because the, the sovereignty, they understand sovereignty exactly in 19th century terms. You are sovereign for as long as I recognize you as sovereign. And if I don't recognize Ukraine as sovereign, if I call Ukraine in public a mechanical composition of territories, partly donated by Russia and partly belonging to the Eastern Europe, and this is a quotation from basically what he said at the Bucharest Summit, and repeated quite close to this text in the post-Crimea speech, that means I don't recognize Ukraine's sovereignty. And, and it's going on now. It's not the end of the story. We've been talking about what was promised to Gorbachev. That we don't know, but we do know what was promised to Ukraine in 94 in the Budapest memorandum. Security assurances. Russia was a guarantor. Russia, no, no, it's not guarantees, but Russia recognized territorial integrity of Ukraine many times, including the big bilateral treaty. And then Mr. Medvedev keeps now saying that Russia has never promised anything to anybody in Ukraine. And when asked how come, he says because we signed those agreements with different, with different cabinets of ministers. Mm-hmm. He's a great lawyer of all times. This is a legal novelty. So they recognized Ukrainian sovereignty in the borders before March. Yeah. So the key to, this, uh, the, to the answer is the understanding that Russian thinking is eclectic. The key word is eclecticism. It has the imperial twin-head eagle, the republican flag, and the Soviet national anthem. And nobody sees a discrepancy in that. (laughs) So why people would see the discrepancy between calling something sovereign when you like and need it, and something else kind of playing with the liberal order. So eclecticism is the word.
0: Well, so human, so human. Uh, I, would, I, would say, uh, I would say, you know, Russia may not have soft power, but it has an enormous power to evoke passions. So, so let's give a round of applause to us.